Perspective can make all the difference in the world. Surely you know what I mean by that. Seeing the glass half full instead of half empty can mean the difference between enthusiasm in life and discouragement in life. The book of Philippians, maybe more than any other book in the Bible, has the ability to clear up our perspective on life. The key verse to the letter is chapter 1, verse 21, where Paul says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That was Paul's motto in life. And since that was Paul's motto in life, he was able to be joyful even in the midst of terrible circumstances. Please turn with me in your Bible to Philippians chapter 1, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. As Paul wrote this letter, he was a prisoner in Rome. He didn't know if he would ever be released. He didn't know if at any moment someone would come to lead him away to execution. Yet the attitude of joy permeates the pages of this letter. Sixteen different times in this letter, some form of the word joy is used. Joy, rejoice, rejoicing, some form of the word joy, 16 times. So this is a letter of joy. And God wants to use this letter to give us a clear perspective on life so we can experience the kind of joy that Paul talks about in this letter. Please follow along as I read verses 3 through 8 of chapter 1, though we won't cover all of these this morning, but just to get the, the full paragraph in our minds. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ." As I mentioned a moment ago, this is a letter of joy. And if we will digest this letter, it will tell us and show us and instruct us concerning joy. Since that is the theme, let me give a couple of introductory thoughts about joy and contentment. And I use those terms here somewhat interchangeably. Two introductory comments about contentment and joy. Number one, being content slash Joyful in life doesn't come naturally, but those traits can be learned by the obedient Christian. Paul hints at this over in chapter 4, verse 11, where he says, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. That's a significant statement to me. I have learned, Paul says, implying he had not always been that way in his life, but he learned contentment. He learned joy. So again I say, contentment and joy are virtues and character traits that are learned through growth, time, and surprisingly through adversity. 
Introductory comment number two. Joy and sorrow are not mutually exclusive, as so many Christians think. Joy and sorrow are not mutually exclusive. Let me show you an example of this in the life of our Lord Jesus. Go back to the Gospel of John, chapter 11, to the fourth Gospel record, the fourth book of the New Testament, John, chapter 11. This chapter records the death and resurrection of Lazarus, the friend of Jesus, a close friend of Jesus. We pick up the story in verse 33, where it says of Mary, who had just come to meet Jesus, verse 33, Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. Jesus wept on this occasion because he hurt to see his dear friends hurting. He wasn't so much weeping over the death of Lazarus because he knew what he was about to do, that is, raise him from the dead. But Jesus was deeply moved because of the sorrow that sickness and death brought to the lives of his friends. Verse 37, And some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Jesus entered into the sorrow and grief of death. The prophet Isaiah said he would. Isaiah 53, 3 and 4 says, Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus experienced sorrow, deep sorrow, profound sorrow. In fact, I believe because of his perfection, the depth of his sorrow was greater than anything any human being has ever experienced. Look at chapter 12, the very next chapter of this gospel. Verse 27, Jesus said, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Notice that Jesus didn't say, what shall I do? There was no question what he would do. His statement was, what shall I say? On this occasion, as Jesus talked about the necessity of his death, he began to think of all that it would involve He realized the excruciating price he would have to pay for our sins. He thought about the fact that he would become sin and would be punished by his own father. He thought about the fact that his own father would turn away from him at that hour. And as he thought about all of that, he did so with mixed emotions. He wanted, on the one hand, to to ask to be delivered. But he knew that the entire reason behind the incarnation was for the purpose of dying as man's substitute. What we see here in John 12, 27 is a glimpse of the agony he would go through three days later in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
John, interestingly, doesn't tell us about Jesus' struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane, as we read of in other gospel accounts. But John does tell us about this struggle. And Jesus came to the same conclusion both times. He would go through with it. In spite of the grief and the sorrow he would experience. So my point in showing us these passages is that Jesus experienced sorrow. Deep and profound sorrow. But look at what he said over in chapter 15 of this gospel. Just a few pages over to the right. This is when Jesus was with his men in the upper room on the night before his death. His final night with his men before his death. And he says to them in chapter 15, verse 11, These things I have spoken to you that in me, or that, no, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Isn't that interesting? Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and yet he also had joy. He had so much joy, so much deep and profound joy that he said to his men, I want you to have my joy. I want to leave my joy with you. What that tells us is that joy and sorrow are not mutually exclusive. The reason why I emphasize this point is because some Christians wrongly think that when they are experiencing sorrow, they are sinning. They think that joy and sorrow are mutually exclusive. They know the Bible talks about joy and rejoicing in the Lord always, so they assume, well, when I'm sorrowful, I must be in sin. That is not the case. Paul even said in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 that believers sorrow, but we are not to sorrow as others who have no hope. Our sorrow is not a hopeless sorrow. We can have joy even in the midst of sorrow because of our hope. This was the kind of joy Jesus experienced. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 12, over near the end of the New Testament, near the end of the Bible. (coughs) Before the book of James is Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 1 says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, verse 2, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The phrase I want to especially call to your attention is the phrase, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What was it that got Jesus through that immensely difficult experience? It was the hope of his future joy. This joy that was set before him. Again I say, beloved, we can have joy in the midst of sorrow because of our hope. The world cannot have this kind of joy. Here's an example of the world's attempt to overcome discouragement, sadness, depression, and attempt to have joy. A book was published a while back by Random House Publishing called The Way Up From Down. It was written by a medical doctor named Slagle. The book is supposed to be a manual on how to overcome depression. 
It recommends that the way to overcome depression is through the use of amino acids, vitamin, mineral supplements, and other antidepressant drugs. Let me give you a quick overview of the book, because this is, uh, this is the, sort of probably the prevailing theory of our day, even though this was written a little while back. The author's theory is that depression is basically caused by a deficiency in certain chemicals in the body, blood, spinal fluid, urine, etc. So, according to this doctor's theory, a person can be tested for chemical markers and their depression will show up in a chemical deficiency. Dr. Slagle goes on to say that in the brain there are neurotransmitters that pass impulses from one cell to the next... But if the chemicals are depleted, then what is in one cell can't be passed to another, and that creates depression. So according to Dr. Slagle, depression can be relieved by putting certain chemicals in your body that your body isn't producing and should be producing. After two chapters explaining all of that, there comes the 100 pages explaining this doctor's recommended solution. One suggestion was to take vitamin B1, B2, B3, B4, B5, B6, B12, and other amino acids to help your body create the chemicals it's supposed to create. Or another option is to take some kind of drug to make up for your body's deficiency. Then came the second to the last chapter of the book. Dr. Dr. Slagle said this, and I quote, However... That caught my attention. However, if you continue habitual negative thought patterns, you will severely undermine the whole treatment. Persistent negative attitudes can lead to constriction and bondage, whereas consistent positive thoughts and expectations create expansion and freedom. Someone has said we suffer because we don't see things the way they are, but as we are. Last sentence in this quote. We can only see differently. We can only see differently by wanting to see differently. End quote. Doesn't that sound amazing to you? Basically, what that says is all the chemical treatment he prescribes might help people who could overcome their depression without it. It basically cancels out the entire book. So the book closes with a chapter called How to Reprogram Your Mind Without Negative Thinking. Here are some of the suggestions. Some are good. Some are off the wall. Number one, every time you have a negative thought, shout loudly, cancel! Well, you know what category that one falls into. Number two, develop the art of creative visualization. Number three, do sleep programming. Get a positive tape and play it all night while you're sleeping or listen to music with positive vibes. Number four, get exercise. That's good input. Number five, stop being focused on the future. To help you do that, you should read the book Be Here Now by Baba Ram Das, and it will teach you how to focus on the moment and ignore the future. Number six, release all your anger. Number seven, Cultivate a meaningful spiritual philosophy. Find a belief system that works for you. Anyone will do if it works. But 
but avoid those that talk of sin and guilt. And then number eight, the conclusion of the book, find the light in yourself. The doctor closes with this statement. Again, direct quote. Remember, we are not here to experience mental and existential bondage. We are here to rejoice, to give and receive joy, to see and experience the true essence, not superficial appearances, to perceive beauty, order, and harmony, not ugliness, chaos, and discord, to see color, to vibrate and flow with the rhythm of time, to germinate, come to fruition, and ultimately fade, to be swallowed, then spewed into the next river of life, new energy, new form beyond our current level of reckoning, with unwavering, gradual beckoning to cross the horizon of time, exchanging dimensions, expanding, uniting, bon voyage, end quote. That is a depressing book. I have a better idea. Get the perspective of the book of Philippians for true joy and save 1795. So with that in mind, let's go back to the book of Philippians to see the Holy Spirit's words through Paul concerning keys to joy in life. Philippians chapter 1. After Paul's opening greeting in verses 1 and 2, he gives his customary salutation, which was a part of... Uh, literature, epistles in the first century. So this, this letter follows the basic same form as letters that were written in the first century. And so in his salutation, he says in verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Notice the word my there in verse 3. My God. That is, that is such a beautiful phrase of personal intimacy. Paul didn't just see God as God. He saw God as his God. And beloved, that's how we ought to see God. He is our heavenly Father if we have received his Son, Jesus Christ. Yes, he is our corporate God. That is why we pray as Jesus taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven. He is our God corporately, but he is also our personal God Paul uses the singular personal pronoun here. I thank my God. This reminds us that being a child of God is far more than simply believing in a body of facts. It is far more than simply believing information. Being a child of God is a relationship with a person. It's a relationship with the living God so that we can call him my God. And because it's a relationship, we can talk to our Heavenly Father. That's what Paul did. In verse 3, he mentions that he thanked God. In verse 4, he mentions he asked requests of God. Because God was his personal God, he talked to him. What a privilege that is to talk to God and to know, to be guaranteed from Scripture that he hears us. And he cares. First Peter 5, 7, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. So Paul talked to God because God was his personal God. And notice again what he says here in verse 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. 
It had probably been five years since Paul had seen these believers in Philippi, but he hadn't forgotten them. The passing of time had not diminished his love for them. Paul loved them with a selfless love. Remember, he's the one in prison as he writes this letter, and yet he writes them to tell them not to worry about him because he is rejoicing. That's quite a perspective. He was in prison, yet his thoughts weren't on himself. They were on them. He was incredibly unselfish because of his deep love for them. And they loved Paul. This church loved Paul. It's obvious as you look at the New Testament information, this was a group of people that really loved Paul. They demonstrated that by giving gifts to his ministry time and time again. They supported him in his apostolic work. And as Paul thought about all that they meant to him, he says here in verse 3 and verse 4 that he was filled with joy. Paul had an inventory of memories that brought him joy as he reflected on those memories. And beloved, herein, I believe, is one of the keys to joy in life. Don't miss this. This is one of the keys to joy in life. Paul says here in verse 3 that he thanked God upon, look at the word again, every remembrance of them. Every remembrance, Paul? Were these perfect people? Absolutely not. They had problems. They had weaknesses. They had shortcomings. They had flaws. There is a hint that runs all the way through this letter that there may have been some problems with disunity starting to fester in this church. So we know these weren't flawless people. They were like us, like you, like me. Flaws, warts and all. Paul addressed things that he needed to address in this letter. He he addressed the, the potential for disunity. But watch this. He didn't focus on those problems. Those flaws. The heart of joy. The heart of joy focuses on the positive traits in other believers. That is so key. The natural tendency, watch this in your life, the natural tendency is to focus on others' unkindness, ingratitude, faults, and wounds they have afflicted on us. That's the natural tendency, beloved. But the heart of joy focuses on the positive traits of other believers. I warn you, one of the ways you forfeit joy in life is by focusing on all the bad things about other people. You want to lose joy? You want to forfeit joy? Just focus on all the bad things you see in other people. Some people, sadly, thrive on that stuff. They they can't seem to get enough of it. They're just fixated on it. And they wonder why they have little to no joy. As Thomas Hardy put it, some people can find the manure pile in any meadow. That's true. Beloved, don't live your life like that. God wants to teach us to really love God people and see his grace in people's lives because love covers a multitude of sins. And when we love people that way, we can experience the joy that Paul talks about here, not only here in this opening chapter, but throughout the letter. 
So let me give you some advice, some counsel. Ask the Spirit of God to erase your bad memories of unkindnesses. You have them. I have them. We all have them. Ask the Spirit of God to erase your bad memories of unkindnesses. Ask Him to produce a joy in you that focuses on joyful memories. That's what Paul did. He had fond memories because he loved these believers. He said, I thank God upon every remembrance of you. And that tells us he chose. He chose to think about the good things that produced good memories. He thanked God upon every remembrance of them. And he demonstrated his love by praying for them. He says in verse 4, Always, in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy. Don't miss those two words, with joy. Paul's hardship made him better, not bitter. Adversity seems to always do one or the other with the child of God. Those are basically your two options. With hurt, pain, adversity, your, your two options are better or bitter. They really are. It's that basic. And what a tragedy it is when a person is going through hard times and needs God desperately to see that person turn away from the Lord. I don't say that in a condemning way, beloved, because I've been there too. I've wondered why God allows certain things to happen. Life isn't fair. It wasn't fair for the Apostle Paul, of all people, to be incarcerated, to have lost his freedom. For at this point, by the time he wrote this letter, it was maybe close to five years. He had been unjustly incarcerated. And it wasn't fair to have people purposely making his incarceration more difficult as we read later in this chapter. Can you imagine it? You're in prison or you're incarcerated unjustly and fellow believers, fellow Christians, purposely making your incarceration more difficult. That, that wasn't right. Paul didn't deserve that. I don't doubt that he even wondered why it was happening to him at times. Nobody can say why God does what he does. I don't have all the answers, but I do know that there are no answers. There are no answers when we turn away from the very one who can hold us up when we are being knocked down. That's when we really need to hold on even if we don't feel like it. That's real faith. It's easy to believe God knows what he's doing when things are going well for us. It's easy to be faithful to God when life is smooth. But when we don't understand why we're going through the hard times and we still remain faithful, that's real faith. But that doesn't come naturally. It takes the kind of perspective Paul had on life, the kind of perspective that he sets forth to us here in this letter called Philippians. Since, by God's grace, Paul was so interested in the lives of others, he could set aside his own problems to seek to be an encouragement to other people. In this case, he mentions he is praying for the Philippians. Paul received great joy. Note this. Paul received great joy from praying for others. He didn't see it as a chore. He saw it as a privilege to pray for these people. 
Even though Paul's needs at this time were in many ways greater than their needs, he found joy in praying for them. This is a perfect illustration of what he exhorts over in chapter 2. He will say to them later in this letter, chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let me paraphrase that. Don't just think about yourself. Think about others. And, and especially, this sounds strange, especially when you are going through a very difficult time. Then maybe more than any other time we need to think about others. Because, oh, when we go through those times, how easy it is to become self-absorbed. Paul exemplified what he writes here in chapter 2 as he prayed for the welfare of the Philippian believers, though he was the one unjustly incarcerated for about five years already. Listen as I quote William Barclay at this point. He says, George Raindrup in his book, No Common Task, tells how a nurse once taught a man to pray and in doing so changed his whole life until a dull, disgruntled, and dispirited creature became a man of joy. How did she do this? Much of the nurse's work was done with her hands. And so she used her hands as a scheme or a little reminder to pray. Each finger stood for someone. Her thumb was nearest to her, and it reminded her to pray for those who were closest to her. The second finger was used for pointing And it stood in her mind for all her teachers in school and in the hospital, those who pointed her the way in life. The third finger was the tallest, and it stood for the VIPs, the the leaders in every sphere of life. The fourth finger was the weakest, as every pianist knows, and it stood for those who were in trouble and in pain. The little finger was the smallest and the least important, and to the nurse... It stood for herself, end quote. No wonder that woman was able to teach that cranky man about joy. She understood one of the keys to joy in life. To be honest with you, I believe there are very few Christians who know this kind of joy that Paul knew. Very few. And it shows up in the two ways we've already talked about this morning. Number one, their negative thoughts about other people. And number two, the lack of selfless concern for people to be willing to pray for them, especially in the midst of their own problems. We are self-centered and selfish by nature. And that, catch this, that robs us of the joy we could otherwise experience in the Christian life. Love finds its fulfillment in the joy that comes from caring for others. And so Paul says back in chapter 1, verse 5, he says, I'm making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. 
The word fellowship here in chapter 1, verse 5 could be misleading to you if, if you only think about sitting around talking together when you, when you hear the word fellowship. That's not what the word means entirely. Now, fellowship can be sitting around sharing about life in Christ and the Christian life. But it's important to realize that this word at its root means partnership. That's what the word means. Some Christians wonder why they don't have any fellowship. And in some cases, it's because they don't do anything in the Christian life. They don't really have any partnerships. They, they don't serve in any way. Fellowship is the outflow of doing something in the Christian life. Fellowship is the result of working with other Christians toward the furtherance of the gospel. So if you're not involved in serving Christ with other people, if you're not involved in any partnerships, then you aren't going to have the kind of fellowship that Paul is describing here. What Paul is referring to here is the fact that the Philippians had been partners with him by supporting him in his work of the gospel, spreading the gospel, and by personally spreading the gospel themselves. They cooperated with Paul in spreading the good news themselves and by supporting his ministry. Over in chapter 4, he mentions that they had sent him several financial gifts for his ministry. And that gave Paul great joy. Why? Why? Because Paul was thrilled to see his spiritual children grow to the point where they saw the importance of giving to the Lord's work. He says that in chapter 4, verse 17. He says this, Not that I seek the gift. He's been talking about this gift to the Lord's work, and he doesn't want them to, to misunderstand and to assume that he's all focused on money. And No, he says, Not that I seek the gift. The, the money's really not the issue. But I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. In other words, the thing that meant more to Paul than the money toward his ministry was the fact that their giving reflected spiritual growth and progress. And nothing brings more joy to the heart of a true spiritual shepherd than does spiritual growth in the lives of those to whom he ministers. The Apostle John expressed this in his third letter, 3 John 4, where he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. And he's referring there to those he had shepherded, his spiritual children. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. I can relate to that. Few things break my heart more than to hear of people in the body who aren't growing because they refuse to do what is necessary in order to grow. Honestly, I lose sleep many nights over people like that. But on the other side of the coin, nothing thrills my heart more than seeing or hearing about people growing spiritually in their walk with Christ. That's what Paul is referring to back in chapter 1, verse 5, when he mentions their gift their partnership in the gospel. It gave Paul joy when the Philippians gave money to the Lord's work because he saw it as an evidence of their spiritual growth. That's what he was so excited about. He knew that God would take care of him one way or the other. He didn't need their financial contribution, but they needed to give it. Let me stop here at this point and challenge you on this very subject. It is true it is true that a person can give money to the Lord's work and not be spiritually mature or spiritually growing. That's a distinct possibility. In other words, someone could give to the Lord's work because it's a tax write-off or because of 
pressure, or who knows, there could be a number of reasons. So it's true that a person could give money to the Lord's work and not be spiritually mature or growing. But it is impossible to be growing spiritually or spiritually mature and not support the Lord's work. Let me say that again. A person can give financially to the Lord's work and not be spiritually mature not be spiritually grown, or even be a non-Christian for that matter, but it is impossible to be growing spiritually. It is impossible to be spiritually mature and not support the Lord's work. How can I say that? Because the issue is not how much we have. It is not how much we have. The issue is what we do with what we have. The Philippian believers didn't have much, according to 2 Corinthians 8. Take the time at some point to read 2 Corinthians 8 to see exactly, actually how poor they were. They didn't have much. But giving to the Lord's work was a priority in their lives because they were doing well spiritually. And Paul rejoiced in that. Paul says, I, chapter 1, verse 5, I am so thankful for your fellowship, your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And so I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. How's your joy this morning? If it's not what it ought to be, or not what you would like it to be, then ask yourself these three closing questions based on what we've seen this morning. Number one, do you remember the good things about God's work in the lives of people? Or do you focus on all the bad things? Number two, do you have a genuine interest in the spiritual well-being of others to the point of praying for them earnestly, praying for them sincerely? Number three, are you involved in serving Christ with other people, partnership with other people, so that as a result you are experiencing true biblical fellowship? If you can't answer yes to those questions, then it's no wonder that you don't have the kind of joy that Paul talks about here in this letter. These were the things that gave Paul joy. These were the keys, or at least some of the keys, for joy in Paul's life. And beloved, the same can be true of us. If we will embrace the same perspective, the same outlook, and the same priorities in life, that Paul sets forth to us in this letter. Let's bow together in closing this morning. And as you bow your head and close your eyes, I encourage you to give some thoughtful reflection, some attention to evaluation, to look at your life, to evaluate it in light of what we have seen this morning in God's Word. Are you a person who exhibits the kind of joy that Paul describes here? If not, then it would behoove us to ask the question, why? What is it that I am doing or not doing that robs me of this kind of joy? What is it about my heart, my attitude, my actions, my priorities, whatever the case, that I I don't really have this kind of joy? However the Spirit of God has spoken to your heart or 
prompted you, I encourage you, don't, don't dismiss it. Don't close your Bible and walk out of here unchanged. Do what is necessary to bring your heart, your life, your thoughts, your perspective into conformity to what we've seen just in this early stage of how to have a clear perspective on life. If you're here today without a relationship with Jesus Christ, there's no way you can have the joy, the kind of joy that Paul talks about here. The joy that Paul had was rooted in and it flowed from his his vibrant relationship to Jesus Christ. If you're here today without a relationship to Christ, I encourage you, encourage you to humble yourself this very moment, right there where you are seated. Humble yourself before God. Acknowledge your sin. Call out to God and ask Him to forgive you of your sin. Tell the Lord Jesus Christ you want Him to come into your life, forgive you, change you, to save you, to take control of your life and make you the man or the woman He wants you to be. Surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Begin living for Him and follow the path of joy. Father, what a treasure your word is as a whole. And what a treasure this little letter is tucked away here in the New Testament. A letter of joy. Sixteen references to joy, rejoicing, or rejoice in four brief chapters. Enable us to digest what it is you want us to learn here in the weeks ahead to emulate the kind of character, the kind of life that Paul, Paul exhibited in his own life, to be the kind of joyful people that you want us to be and to live life, a life that honors you, Father, and your Son, the Lord Jesus. And as we close our time together this morning, we always want to pray for anyone here in our midst this morning, maybe someone hearing from a distance through some type of media hearing uh, your word and is without a relationship to Jesus Christ, we pray that your Holy Spirit would, would give understanding, insight, so that that man or woman, young person, whoever it is, would see his or her need, would surrender, whatever, let go of whatever is holding him back, to surrender to Jesus Christ, to receive him, to receive his forgiveness, receive his salvation, to be transformed by the grace of Christ, not only so that he or she can someday go to heaven, but be changed for this life here and now. And we pray these things together in the matchless name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.